top of the season, we set out to build a second home for humanity on Mars, no longer a frozen, desert world at the other end of an impassable ocean. We're looking to bring the red planet back to life. Oceans, forests, and amidst it all a perfect city just on the other side of our brand new space infrastructure, and the transport of thousands of people. Now for the last few episodes, we've worked towards this goal more or less chronologically, from liftoff of our first mission and defending our purpose here, you know, why are we doing this, to surviving in space. You might imagine us floating now in zero gravity in our shuttle, kind of looking down on our cold, red destination. What follows is our landing, our first ground mission, our first colony, and then our first city. That's a new architecture, a new construction paradigm, even a whole new host of materials that we've never used before, and we will get to all of that. But first, we're going to skip a bit ahead, because I think it's important to start digging into the real goal here, building a world. There are exciting astrobiological, which is to say alien, reasons to explore Mars. There's a great research opportunity here, no matter what the planet looks like, and we can do that. We can stop at building a vastly more expensive version of the Antarctic research stations that Let's face it, with our track record, it looks like we will eventually abandon. But we can't grow a new branch of human civilization on a barren wasteland, and that's really the task that we're exploring here in this podcast. Now, Mars wasn't always dead. All evidence suggests it used to be a water world. And all that water's still there. It's just frozen and covered in dust. So how do we melt that ice? It starts with warming the planet. Now, we do not like the sound of global warming here on Earth. But on Mars, we're looking for that greenhouse effect. So today. Let's build an atmosphere. I'm Mike Solana, and this is Anatomy of Next, New World. There used to be stable, free-flowing liquid water on the surface of Mars. I think it's important to put on the table the idea of terraforming, to make Mars one more time a world habitable for life. I've used the word alchemy a few times this season. That is, the almost magical transformation of matter from one thing, say stone, to another, say gold. And I think that word, alchemy, has been coming up a lot because, in a way, most of what humans have accomplished thus far, technologically, does have this kind of alchemical nature from nothing, something new. The kind of popular saying at Founders Fund, coined by our colleague Peter, is from zero to one. Now, I think nothing on this journey to Mars so better exemplifies our challenge in alchemy, in material transformation, as rebuilding the Martian atmosphere. On the planet, we do have carbon dioxide in a gaseous state, but not nearly enough to create a greenhouse effect. Which we need to warm the planet, to melt that ice, and to bring back our oceans. So first, a little alien inventory. Let's take a look at what we're working with. You know, Mars is not a hospitable place right now. Matt Gollenbeck is a planetary geologist at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at the California Institute of Technology, which is the NASA Center for Planetary Exploration in Pasadena, California. He works almost exclusively on Mars, on the rovers and the orbiters, and his particular expertise is selecting the landing sites on Mars for our robotic missions, which he's done for the last five landers. We're going to talk to him a bit more when we assess our new world for a good spot to build our first city. But at the top of my interview with him, I asked what our early astronauts would be dealing with when they arrived. The surface pressure and the temperature are actually below the triple point of water. So liquid water is not stable anywhere on the surface, pretty much. The atmosphere is very thin, carbon dioxide. It's not breathable. It's not livable. It is in no way habitable. It's an incredibly harsh environment. The temperature is extremely cold. The amount of humidity in the atmosphere is practically non-existent. 
there's just no water around easily obtainable. How you get the ice into some kind of form you could use is not simple. The ice at the temperatures that these would be on Mars is as hard as, you know, granite. It'd be like concrete. So it's not like you're just going to scrape it up. It's, it's really too hard for that. You'd have to dynamite and blast it and then heat it. And it's not going to be, it's not like you just poke a straw down and sip. <laughs> and in fact, if you wanted liquid, you'd probably need to go several kilometers down, you know, a mile or two just to get to a liquid zone. <laughs> and that's not going to be easy either. So Martian temperatures as low as negative 143 degrees Celsius or negative 225 degrees Fahrenheit. The atmospheric pressure of Mars is less than 1% of Earth's. It's about 2% argon, 2% nitrogen, with very thin traces of oxygen and water, and comprised mostly at 96% of carbon dioxide, which, as previously mentioned, doesn't really do much in terms of warming anything up because there's so little atmosphere at all. And then there's the dust. You know, it's just going to be everywhere. There's no way to keep it out of stuff. It's going to have this reddish patina of dust over everything. <laughs> the observations of the sun uh, allow you to get some of the refractive properties of the dust. It's probably one to five microns in diameter, and it looks like there's these little flat platelets suspended in the atmosphere, and it pretty much falls out constantly on the surface. Our, our solar-powered rovers get a regular dose as the Dust falls out of the atmosphere, and it does so regularly, and it fouls up the solar panels and decreases their efficiency and just get everywhere. <laughs> Mars as it stands is basically Mad Max. It is an actual death planet. Of course, it wasn't always like this. So my name is Robert Lillis, and I am an associate research physicist at the Space Sciences Laboratory at the University of California, Berkeley. This is an organized research unit out of the program at UC Berkeley built by NASA for the purpose of training future generations of space scientists. What was Mars? You know, it wasn't always, it wasn't always cold and dry. That's right, that's right. And there are multiple lines of evidence that we have to suggest that A, there used to be stable, free-flowing liquid water on the surface of Mars. This is a truly anomalous formation. It's unlike anything that we've seen so far. We're trying not to go too nuts up here, but we think there's a good chance that this could be water. Of course, if that's correct, then we may have found the key to permanent human colonization. And also B, that Mars had a much thicker atmosphere, which is necessary to have that liquid water be stable. The evidence for liquid water comes in several forms. We have observed minerals on the surface of Mars in moderate to large quantities that can only be formed by prolonged exposure of other kinds of rocks to liquid water. We found what are called valley networks. These are areas of Mars where there are these dendritic precipitation fed, or so it looks like, because that's what it looks like on Earth, channels which really are only explainable by either precipitation over hundreds of thousands of years in, in total or or snowmelt. Then also we've, we've seen geomorphologic evidence up close that the rovers have seen things like these uh, concretions, uh, stream bed features that are very, very analogous to what we see on Earth whenever you have liquid water flowing over, over a certain amount of time. So there's zero doubt that there was liquid water on the surface of Mars, and you can't explain those features without it being there for at least hundreds of thousands of years. And you can't have water without an atmosphere, so we know there was an atmosphere. We know there was a thicker atmosphere. The current Martian atmosphere is about six to nine millibars. 
the minimum atmospheric pressure that you need according to models to sustain that kind of liquid water is at least 100, 150 millibars. That's like 10 to 15 percent of Earth's atmosphere. So that's a pretty sharp picture of what Mars was, and also, in a sense, a picture of the Martian potential, what this planet could be again. Now, this is where we get into the terraforming. When I talked to Matt Golombic, I thought he framed the problem pretty well, so I think we'll start there. To terraform Mars, you need to do two things. One is you have to increase the average surface temperature of the planet. And the second thing is you need to dramatically increase the pressure of the atmosphere to where a liquid water could potentially be stable. So you want to take it from a frozen desert wasteland to some kind of tropical paradise. And there's lots of ideas about how to do that, you know, big solar panels that put energy down. Thickening the atmosphere is going to be difficult. So we have an inventory of the amount of carbon dioxide that's, uh, you know, it actually freezes out at the poles and then is re-liberated as the, the seasons change. We think we've found about enough carbon dioxide to increase the atmosphere by maybe a factor of 10. But that's still, you know, a thousand or a hundred less than what you would need to get liquid water stable. So, so somehow you need to get the CO2 to create the atmosphere thickness. You need to warm it up. It's not going to be a fast process. It's going to take quite a bit of time. And there'd be challenges to get that much energy to warm it up and to find the CO2 to thicken the atmosphere. And then, because the current state of Mars is, is not stable with a thick atmosphere, you'd need to be replenishing it constantly because it, it'd be sputtering away by the solar wind hitting the outer parts and stripping it. Because we don't have a magnetosphere. No magnetosphere, right. Yeah, nothing to protect it. So, so, so whatever you do, you have to keep doing and you got to do it fast because <laughs> the natural processes are going to be working against you. Golombic cites a pretty conservative inventory of the carbon dioxide frozen in the southern polar ice caps. And he mentions that these stores of carbon dioxide would not be enough to build an atmosphere capable of supporting liquid water on Mars. And that does currently seem likely to be correct but I don't really think that's what we're trying to do here. In the earliest terraforming thought experiments, the goal was more to warm the planet up enough to release the carbon dioxide in the planet's regolith. That's Martian dirt, basically. In computational studies, Chris McKay and Robert Zubrin found that an increase of just four degrees Celsius at the Martian South Pole would be enough to begin a runaway greenhouse effect. As the southern ice cap warmed and carbon dioxide was released into the atmosphere, the whole planet would warm. Even more carbon dioxide would be released into the atmosphere, the planet would warm further, and on and on. Now, this whole past decade, scientists have been questioning, you know, just how much carbon is on that planet. And the truth is, there's really no way of telling exactly how much we'll have available until we explore. Pessimists, of course, see a firm dead end. But even if we got to Mars and there weren't vast amounts of carbon, say, covered up by the regolith, as is totally possible, there are other gases with which you can supplement the perhaps limited amount of carbon dioxide we'll be able to release. Synthetic greenhouse gases, for example, or molecular hydrogen, H2. And we're going to get to this strategy with an expert in a minute. Now to the fear of losing our new atmosphere to solar wind. When I first started researching this, I kind of imagined it was happening immediately and dramatically. It was my first of many moments I thought this whole goal of terraforming Mars and colonizing this new world just might not be possible. And I imagined us building clouds and then like massive waves of solar energy just burning them up. 
But when I turned to YouTube and found my first video of Chris McKay speaking at the California Academy of Science, just down the street from where I live actually, up in the hate, I found my answer. All right, the question is, Mars doesn't have a magnetic field, uh, it also has lower gravity, and we're not gonna change either of those, so won't it be doomed to lose its atmosphere again? And the answer is yes, and we can calculate how fast it would lose it, uh, even without the magnetic field due to solar wind sputtering. To, to give just a real quick technical explanation of how you do the calculation, when Mars, for those of you that have background in atmospheric science, if Mars is warmed up, we basically just increase the vertical elevation of all the current pressure levels. So the current pressure level at which gases escape is still the same pressure level, it's just as higher in the atmosphere as we've added a couple scale heights below. So it's about uh, 30 kilometers higher, which has no effect at all in gravity or anything else. So it's essentially the same physics as the escape, as the exco base today, which means the escape rate doesn't change, which means Mars will lose its atmosphere in about 100 million years. But that's a long time. That's a long time in the future. The Earth won't last much longer than that. Uh, the Earth, current estimates are, will last about 500 million years before the sun uh, becomes bright, brighter and the Earth becomes like Venus. And then eventually, of course, five billion years, the sun becomes red giant and the Earth is toast. Now, I actually am obsessed with the idea of uh, troubleshooting ways to keep the sun from burning out. But this is a very, very, very long term problem. And I don't think that we need to worry about it today. As Chris mentioned, 100 million years is kind of a long time. And we can just start there. We can just start with the idea that we can build an atmosphere and maintain it for 100 million years. He's right okay. there. Hello, Michael. Hey, Sorry Chris. to be late. No, it's not a problem. Thanks so much for taking the interview. Now, I've talked about Dr. McKay a lot in this podcast. I've cited his work. I've shared clips from talks he's given. And I really just wanted to reach out to him. I wanted to talk to him a bit about terraforming in general. And in particular, I thought it was worth talking about how to warm up that southern polar ice cap of carbon dioxide, that four degrees Celsius. Well, my name is Chris McKay. I'm at NASA Ames Research Center here in Silicon Valley. And for the longest time, I've been interested in the questions about life on Mars. And I say questions because there's one, the question about life in the past. Did Mars have life? How does it relate to life on Earth? And the future, could Mars have life in the future? And, and I see those questions as related. Chris McKay is a planetary scientist at NASA Ames Research Center studying planetary atmospheres, astrobiology, and terraforming. Back in 1991, he published a paper with Owen Toon and James Casting called Making Mars Habitable. This is where I first came across his work and his thinking. But really, if you're Googling or YouTubing terraforming, all roads lead back to Dr. McKay. This was a really, really fun interview. Later on, we're going to release the entire thing. There's just like a, a lot in there, especially about astrobiology and the ethics of terraforming. This week, in, in this episode, we're going to focus on the mechanics of terraforming and building up that atmosphere on Mars. Before we talk about the concept of life and whether Mars has life of its own, I think it's important to put on the table the idea of terraforming. And this idea is to make Mars one more time, once again, a world habitable for life. We have good evidence that early in its history, Mars was Earth-like. It had rivers and oceans and a thick atmosphere. And as far as we can tell, it would have been suitable for life. So the basic idea of terraforming is to restore Mars to this early habitable period. Now, to do that, it seems like the main, maybe not the main thing, but the, but the, very, the very first step most people seem to focus on is we just have to make the planet a lot warmer. Um, and to do that, you need an atmosphere. How do you build an atmosphere 
on a planet that doesn't have one, like Mars? Certainly the first step to making Mars habitable again is warming up the planet. But, but actually warming up planets is something that we know how to do. We humans not only know how to do it, we're actually doing it now on Earth. We're sometimes in denial over the fact that we're doing it, but we have mastered that technology and we are implementing it with amazing efficiency. The, the average temperature on Earth is increasing by you know, a, a degree every couple decades uh, or even a degree per decade. If we were to apply that same approach, Mars would warm up uh, remarkably fast, timescales of 100 years, Mars could be as warm as the Earth. And as Mars warmed up, the carbon dioxide in the polar caps, the water trapped in the ice and in the polar regions would melt, vaporize, and the thick atmosphere would come. So in fact, it turns out that one solution, and a very practical one, to warming up Mars is to produce on Mars super greenhouse gases like the ones we're producing on Earth and release them into the atmosphere, doing it on purpose now, not inadvertently the way we are on Earth, and that will warm up Mars, trigger the release of CO2, and restore the thick, warm atmosphere that Mars once had. That's the easy part. Warming up Mars is the easy part. The hard part would be then to try to produce enough oxygen that humans could breathe that atmosphere. That's very hard. We don't know how to do that. The timescales for those calculations indicate that that's hundreds of thousands of years. But we could imagine a warm Mars suitable for many forms of life, a Mars in which humans could move about without a spacesuit, but with a supplemental source of oxygen. That's the vision that terraforming, that's consistent with our current understanding and our current technology, if you will. Can we maybe just drill down a little bit on that chemical process? You were talking about the uh, super greenhouse gases that we've produced on Earth that are kind of screwing up our atmosphere. Um, but how do you build enough of them on Mars or, or produce enough of them on Mars to do this? What do you have to bring to Mars to do it? What, what's on Mars that we would use? Uh, what does that, that early warming process look like before you get that runaway greenhouse effect? Well, the greenhouse gases... Uh, Super greenhouse gases, they're called. And they're called super greenhouse gases because they, they can be thousands of times more effective than carbon dioxide at creating a greenhouse effect. And they work by plugging those regions of the infrared spectrum that allow energy to escape from a planet. Think of it as a way of patching the holes in the blanket. Earth's atmosphere is a blanket. There's certain holes in that blanket that let heat escape to space. And these super greenhouse gases plug those holes very efficiently. So we have found on Earth that these gases at very low levels, parts per million, even parts per billion in the atmosphere can create significant warming. So we don't have to produce a lot of them to have an effect. So we can't carry them to Mars, but we can make them there. So we could say, what kind of gases could we make on Mars from elements that are there that would be long lived in the Martian atmosphere, would not be toxic, and would not destroy the ozone layer, which we something we've learned on Earth. We'd want to apply that knowledge to Mars as well. And the answer is gases that are made out of carbon and fluorine. Those combination of molecules, carbon and fluorine, make excellent super greenhouse gases that don't destroy ozone, are not toxic, and have a long lifetime. So we only have to produce them on Mars at very low levels, parts per million, and that will warm up the atmosphere and trigger the release of CO2. CO2 is important. It's not very strong greenhouse gas, but it's important because it provides a thickening of the atmosphere and it's, of course, important for plants and so on. 
So do you mind just painting me a picture of, of what an astronaut working on this production process, what, it, what is or, or her day might look like? What kind of machines are they working with? What kind of structure are they living inside of? How many machines are there? How we produce these gases will depend in detail on where we are on our journey to Mars, so to speak, at the time we decide to start this, and what kind of technologies we have in terms of automation, in terms of uh, robotic systems. And robotics and automation are advancing so fast that I hesitate to even require that humans be involved in making it. It's, it's hard to predict. What we can say is that this is one way to warm Mars. Go to Mars, produce these greenhouse gases, and release them in the atmosphere at very, very low levels. If I was guessing at how it would be done, I would guess it would be done robotically with artificial intelligence systems. Why waste a human being's time doing the grunge of digging up dirt and turning it into greenhouse gases when you got robots to do it and the humans can do much more interesting things like uh, go search for evidence of past life. Theories to warm up Mars have a pretty enormous range. From stuff like digging holes all the way down into the mantle and releasing its heat, to stuff like somehow capturing carbon-rich comets or small asteroids and redirecting their course so they hit Mars and burn up in the atmosphere, thicken it with fresh gas. And nuclear bombs are always a fun option, either to melt the southern polar ice caps and release that frozen CO2, which, I mean, for what it's worth, you could probably also do by coating them in black paint, but that wouldn't be nearly as fun, uh, or to melt the deep permafrost underneath the Martian surface. And then there's this whole Dyson approach. It was a famous sci-fi book, Ringworld, that introduced broader culture to the concept of Dyson structures. In the case of the book, explorers discovered all of the material in an alien star system had been repurposed into a supermassive, habitable ring around the entire star. Now, the Dyson sphere, despite being pretty improbable theoretically, is probably the most popular example of a Dyson structure. It's what most people think about. And in this case, the idea is you'd build an actual sphere that wrapped around our entire sun and captured all of its energy. But we don't need all of the sun's energy to warm up Mars, just a piece of it. And keeping in the Dyson vein of things, we could do that with a system of mirrors we'd build, hear me out, presumably remotely with an artificially intelligent fleet of self-replicating robots. And their mission? Take apart the planet Mercury and turn it into a giant magnifying glass. Then blast Mars from across the solar system with the most powerful laser beam in human history by, okay, and I'm not entirely sure of the math here, but like many, many, many orders of magnitude. The concept of Dysoning Mercury was popularized by a guy named Stuart Armstrong out of Oxford, and we're actually going to talk to him a little later this season because, I mean, come on, you definitely have not heard of anything cooler this week than literally taking apart a planet to bring another planet back to life. But yeah, I mean, all this stuff is a little bit crazy. In a good way, sure. It's exciting. It's crazy in a fun, interesting way. But it's just totally wild, right? And in the case of giant laser beams capable of roasting a planet, it also sounds a little bit dangerous. So Dr. McKay's approach repurposing material we already know exists on Mars into gases we already know from our history on Earth have a tremendous greenhouse effect is probably the path forward. At least at first, we're going to be working towards an atmosphere mixed of freshly liberated gaseous CO2 and synthetic gases we'll create on the surface of our new home. Now, as the atmosphere thickens and Mars warms, we're going to hit the point at which liquid water can stabilize. And then it's something the planet has not seen for billions of years. Thunderstorms a hydraulic cycle, and eventually, a rebirth of the entire northern ocean. But unfortunately, water and an atmosphere are not the only things we need to live on Mars. And so it is not where the task of terraforming ends. Remember last week we talked a bit about radiation, both solar and cosmic, and how we might navigate this danger both in space, as we journey to Mars, and then once we reach that Martian surface. We're either going to have to burrow underground, 
invent some kind of technology capable of shielding entire cities with some sort of force field, or by extremely great chance, we could happen upon a massive magnetic anomaly. But this entire question, the radiation question, is actually only something we're going to have to think about early on. Well, once the atmosphere is thick, it provides adequate protection for radiation, just like the atmosphere on the Earth does. And in fact, the atmosphere on Mars, to have the same pressure as the atmosphere on Earth, would be three times more massive because gravity is a third. So to get the same weight of the atmosphere, we need three times more mass. So if Mars had a surface pressure approximately equal to the Earth, it would be more than enough radiation protection. If there was a thick CO2 atmosphere and it was warm, Plants would do fine, trees would do fine, many animals, small animals, insects, and even a few mammals would do fine at very, very low oxygen levels. Right. Last question is just nitrogen. Um, that's the one problem, actually, that I, I haven't been able to find any kind of answer to. How are folks at NASA and beyond thinking about a world that might not have enough nitrogen to, to sustain any kind of uh, long-term colonization? In fact, you, you've put your finger on a very key point. Uh, we know the physics of warming up a planet, as I said, we're doing it on Earth. It's pretty straightforward. The real critical unknown about making Mars habitable is, is there enough stuff to make a biosphere? And by stuff, I mean carbon dioxide, water, and nitrogen. Those are the ingredients that you need to make a world for life. Probably enough water, good evidence of that. Probably enough CO2, carbon dioxide. The key question has always been how much nitrogen. There's essentially no nitrogen in the atmosphere. It's very, very tiny, thousands of times less in Mars' atmosphere than Earth's atmosphere. So that was really a quandary. Is there other sources of nitrogen? The possibility was nitrate in the soil, but we had never analyzed for nitrate in the soil in any of our missions until just now. A year and a half ago, a paper came out. I was involved in that work the first detection of nitrates in the soil by the Curiosity rover. That's a major step forward in terms of realization of the practicality of terraforming. The amount of nitrate that we found in the soil was very small. It was only 300 parts per million. Maybe there's higher concentrations elsewhere, but it's the first step toward resolving the question, is there enough nitrogen there? It's not in the atmosphere. It's nitrates in the soil. We've got one detection now. We need more to really know if there's enough. So the nitrogen question. As with the question of whether there are any reliable magnetic anomalies on the surface of the planet, and the question of exactly how much carbon we'll be working with once we get there, is something we're going to have a much better grasp of once we land our first scientists on the planet and start exploring. Best case scenario, we find what we need. Worst case scenario, I get to produce a sequel on Mining Titan. At the very least, we get to talk a little bit about mega demolition and revisiting that concept of redirecting the natural course of those chemical-rich asteroids we mentioned earlier. For now, it's a mystery we're going to have to get comfortable with. It's also a little more motivation to get there as soon as we can. So now we're taking a bit of a break while we work on the next half of the season. And when we come back, it's biology. We've got water. How do we grow plants? How do we grow humans? And how have our advances in genetic engineering changed our entire approach to these questions? Till then, don't fret. We will not be disappearing completely from ethicists to astronauts. We've got a bunch of really great interviews we're going to be releasing. And I want to leave you with an image because we've come far. And here we are now, floating on an ocean that has not existed for billions of years, staring up at the clouds we formed that made it possible. It's alchemy. From stone, water. From a totally alien planet. To a new world. I'm Mike Solana, and this is Anatomy of Next. <laughs> <laughs>